Amen. Amen. Well, we got away this week and we had this on the schedule for a long time. And I'd asked Jared Lopes, who is my favorite person in the world, um, to share with us this morning. Jared's ministry, um, dad tired. If, you, if you're not connected with it on social media, even women connect with it, um, is so valuable, fruitful. Sincerely, Jared, Jared, go ahead and come for me. Jared is, um, one of my sweetest friends in the season and my favorite preacher in America. Personally, <laughs> my favorite preacher. I really mean that. Like, not, not to toot your horn because you, you suck in a lot of other ways. Um, <laughs> I'm, te- I'm teasing. Um, but I really mean that there's such a sincerity and honesty and helpful. Do you know that preaching should be helpful to you? It should help your soul mature in Christ. And when you find someone who handles the word of God in an honest way that's helpful to your soul, man, I latch onto that. So Jared has helped my soul in a lot of ways. And so I just honor you um, and love you. I'm going to cry. Don't be stupid. Oh, stupid. <laughs> Did I mention he sucks in a lot of ways? <laughs> no, but I'm, I'm really thankful. You're a gift of God to my life, and, and I love you a lot. Oh, Amen. Oh, jeez. I'm not sure how to follow that up. I feel like uh, loved and offended and all kinds of things. Uh, I told you guys last time I was here, man, uh, I came in to, my wife was, we moved here uh, like two years ago, and my wife was, she was like, we got to find a local church, got to find a church, and I'd been hurt by the church, so I was real hesitant to like really dive in and plug in, and we came here, and uh, I told Caleb when I met him for the first time, we met for lunch, I was like, dude, I did not want to like you, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, he just, he's become like a friend, uh, we, said, we said this to each other recently, but it's just like, you're the friend I didn't know I needed so badly in my life. So I, this is getting weird. You know, this is, this is weird. Let's just move on. All right. Jeez. This took a weird direction. Um, when, I, when I was in middle school, uh, my uncle, uh, I didn't grow up with a dad. So I had kind of uh, an uncle kind of take me under his wing a little bit. And um, he, he took me to a NASCAR race and... Um, <laughs> now that we're friends, I have so many jokes I want to throw you under the bus, but I'm not going to. <laughs> um, um, he took me to this NASCAR race, and I didn't really like grow up watching NASCAR or anything, but it was it was in Las Vegas, and I thought that sounds. I was a you know I was a young kid. I'm like that Las Vegas sounds in- intriguing and interesting. I'd like to go there. So we loaded up on a plane, he and I, and we went to Las Vegas, and uh, we landed. And as soon as we were getting off of the plane. Like we were, we were just, you know, that, what is that called? Like a tarmac or something? I don't know what it's called. The bridgeway? Yeah. So we're walking there. And as soon as we get off of it, uh, standing right there is Mike Tyson. And I'm like, this is exactly what I pictured Las Vegas being like. Like this is, this is fulfilling everything I imagined it would be. And so Mike Tyson's standing there and he's got like a whole entourage of people with him. And, uh, and so I'm, I was kind of a bold kid, so I just ran over there, and I asked for a picture with him. I was like, can I get a picture with you? He's like, yeah, man. You know, like that. Uh, I practiced that impression for a while. He's like, yeah, man, you get a picture. So we, uh, so then once, when he said yes, I was kind of surprised that he said yes so quickly, and I didn't know how to respond. Like, I didn't, I didn't, this is Mike Tyson, you know, so I didn't, I didn't know what to do in the moment. I started to feel weird and kind of awkward, and he's so, like, famous, and I'm just a little scrawny, like, sweaty, stinky middle school kid. And so I didn't know what to do when we were sitting there for a picture. I didn't know, like, do I put my arm around him? You know, do I, do we, like, do the boxing? I've seen boxers, like, put their fist up. Do I bite his ear? You know, I didn't know, like, 
what is the protocol for a picture with Mike Tyson? And so I didn't, I ended up putting like one hand in my pocket and the other just like thumbs up, you know? It's like braces, you know, just like real awkward. And then he did the same thing, you know? He just did a thumbs up and it's like, it's the worst picture ever. I don't, I, I text my mom. I'm like, mom, do you have this picture? And she's like, no, I don't. She probably threw it away. It was so bad. You know, it was like just such a terrible picture. I was, I was hoping I could throw it on the screen for you, but I don't have it. Anyway, just felt really awkward in his presence. I, when I ran over there, I immediately was struck with like, I, we're nothing alike. Like we have nothing in common. I don't know what to say. Sometimes I, I feel like I am too casual, um, in the presence of God. Um, I, I think that I'm, or maybe we as Christians sometimes are too casual in the presence of God. And I don't think I'm being like blasphemous saying that. I don't, I don't think I'm like, I think that that you can make a solid theological argument that obviously the present, even as we were just singing and worshiping, like there's something in, it's like, man, the spirit of God is in our midst and I don't want to leave, right? There's, there's that sense. I don't want to leave this. But there's also times when the spirit of God is terrifying, and it's like there's a there's a there's that sense that I am nothing like this holy God, and if and if God is you know the Revelation says that we won't even have a need for a son when Jesus comes back, the glory of God will fill the earth, will light the earth. So if there's any part of darkness in you, and you're exposed to that kind of glory, it can be terrifying. And there's a, like, if, again, trying to make like a theological argument, a biblical argument for this, because we don't talk about that a lot. Like the presence of God is obviously amazing. A hundred out of a hundred times, I want to be in the presence of God. But sometimes it is terrifying. But from a biblical perspective, you think about Isaiah when he had this vision of God on the high and lifted up as we were just singing, high and lifted up and his, his robe is filling up the temple. And the seraphim are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The, the, the presence of God is strong. And Isaiah's reaction is not, oh my gosh, this is, uh, this is amazing. I feel such peace. Isaiah's reaction is, woe to me. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. Immediately, there's, he understands his rightful place in the presence of a holy God. I don't think I deserve to be here. This is a holy and just and perfect God, and I am not. Then you think about Peter, right? Peter's fishing. That's all he's known is to fish. He fishes. He's on a boat, and he's fishing, and Jesus is there. And Peter can't catch any fish that day. And Jesus is there, and Jesus says, Peter, throw your net to the other side of the boat, (laughs) which, as a fisherman, is almost offensive. Like, Caleb and I go fishing. If we fish on this side of the boat, we drop our lines on the side of the boat, and some guy from the shore says, did you try putting your line on the other side of the boat? You're like, okay, dude, come on. You think there's no fish here, but there's just going to be a fish here? <laughs> Jesus says, put your net on the other side of the boat. Peter's fish. I mean, he's, he's been in these waters a lot. He's been in this boat a lot. But he, he, okay, sure. Takes his nets, puts them on the other side, tries to pull them up. There are too many fish to pull the net up. Immediately, Peter recognizes that man is not like me. I'm in the presence of a holy God. This some, something, something divine and supernatural and heavenly is happening right now. And what is Peter's reaction? It isn't, whoa, I just feel so much peace and so much comfort. 
Peter's reaction, he falls on his knees at Jesus' feet, and he says, depart from me, I am sinful. The presence of a holy and just God reveals to him, to him how holy and not just he is, how not holy, how not just he is. I am nothing like you. You are nothing like me. You are holy, 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 set apart, different than me. Think about Moses when Moses is getting the Ten Commandments. So up on the mountain and there's, the, the Bible describes it as there's lightning and fire and thunder and smoke. And the people are terrified. They stand at a distance and they say, Moses, you go talk to God on our behalf. <laughs> it's scary. You go talk to God on our behalf. Because if we're in the presence of that holy, almighty God, we are going to die. There's a sense that the presence of God is, yes, comforting and beautiful and majestic and holy. And sometimes it's also terrifying because it reveals to us how not... And this becomes a problem in the scriptures because God is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger, abounding in love. That's who he is. But he's also full of justice. And you have a God who is holy and perfect and also cannot be in the presence of sin. That's a big problem. And so you you establish really quite quickly after that, the Ten Commandments and that, that moment where they said, you go talk to God on our behalf. Very quickly after that becomes this establishment of the priesthood, which is essentially... One person who will go on behalf of the group and advocate for them. I will go talk to God for you. And I will be our mediator. Because you, we all can't be in the presence of God. We are sinful and broken and messy. And this God can't be in the presence of sin. He is perfect and holy and just. And so there's this priesthood. And the priest would offer, as Caleb was just talking about, constant sacrifices on behalf of the people for their sins. There was multiple times a day that they would sacrifice lambs. Uh, Every week they would make these sacrifices. Every month they would make these sacrifices. Every year they would make big sacrifices. And the sacrifices were constantly a reminder that there needs to be bloodshed, atonement for our sin. We are too messy to be in the presence of God. If we have any hope or any chance of being in the presence of God, we need there to be a sacrifice for us. Now, if you're new to the Jesus conversation, that sounds really weird. Truly. And it, is, it kind of is. Like, why are we killing lambs all the time? Multiple times a day. Right? That, if you've been part of the church, you've heard that. But if you're not part of the church or you're, not, you're new to the Jesus conversation, that seems a little crazy. Why are we killing lambs all the time? And to understand that, you have to, go, you have to rewind all the way back to the beginning of the scriptures where things used to be awesome. Man and woman, Adam and Eve, perfectly in sync and in love, no shame, no friction. (laughs) Could you imagine? (laughs) That part of the story lasted about one page in the Bible. (laughs) There's just no friction between husband and wife, man and woman. It's awesome. It's exactly as God designed it to be. And even more beautiful, the relationship between humans and God was exactly as it was designed to be. It was perfect. There was no... There was no shame. There wasn't this massive gap. God was with his people. Imagine to just be in the presence of God so freely without guilt and shame. God can't be in the presence of sin. And at this point of the story, there was none. Until Eve 
who's tempted by the evil one, sees a piece of fruit. She's surrounded by good fruit. She could have gone anywhere, but she sees this piece of fruit. And really the temptation is, I wonder if God's holding out on me. I wonder if there's something other than what God has given us that would actually satisfy my soul. That's the temptation that she faces that day. And she believes the lies of the enemy, and she takes of the fruit that she was commanded to not eat, and she eats it, and then she gives it to her very passive, dumb husband who's standing there quietly, and he eats of it. And in that moment, all of the the whole world, from the macro to the micro, starts to unravel as sin enters into the world. And what was beautiful picture of God with man becomes a massive chasm. God cannot be in the presence of sin. That's who he is. He is a perfect, holy, just God. And this becomes the big problem. You have sinful, broken humans in the presence of a holy and just God. And right then, all of our Bibles should be one page long. It should have ended right there. God in his justice should have said, I'm done. I will not tolerate this sin, and he won't. But yet you have also a gracious and compassionate God who says, I will make a way for us to be together again. It's crazy. And so what does God do? Well, Adam and Eve, what they do is they immediately feel their shame. And so they take some leaves and they cover their nakedness because their nakedness now gives them shame. So they try to cover themselves. And God comes and he says, where are you? They say, we're hiding because we felt shameful. God says, you've eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from. There's a whole series of events and consequences. But then you see God so graciously. It's almost slipped into the scriptures. You have to, into this chapter, you have to see it. You have to read it slowly. But it says that God takes the skins of an animal and he covers their nakedness and shame. This is the very first time in all the scriptures that we see an animal sacrifice. Did the animal sin? So what's happening here? An innocent animal lost its life, shed its blood, and the coverings of that animal are now covering up the sins of Adam and Eve. This word is atonement. The word atonement quite literally means cover up. God being so gracious as your leaves aren't good enough. There must be consequences for sin. Sin always leads to death. And in that moment, the death was put on an innocent animal. And the innocence of that animal was transferred onto the guilty party. And that becomes the setup for all of the Old Testament. So when you read these stories of a priest who is sacrificing constantly, a lamb constantly. And you're like, why are we killing animals? It's deeply symbolic. That the animal, it is a big deal, but the animal is taking on the big deal of sin. The innocent animal is taking on the big deal of sin and it is transferring innocence onto a guilty party over and over and over again. Multiple times a day, every month, every week, every year. This is happening because it's the only chance that a broken and sinful people can be in the presence of a holy and just God. You guys hanging with me so far? Okay. So they established what was called a high priest. A high priest was basically the chief priest who would represent this group of people. Once a year, they would have the holiest of days called Yom Kippur. Say Yom Kippur with me. 
Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur was the holiest day of the year where this high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and advocate for all the people for the whole year. I'm, I'm going to go on God's behalf and I'm going to advocate for us so that we as a people can be in the presence of God. So you would just think like if we're a big group here, like everybody write down your sins. Okay. And then we just compile them up. All right. Who's like, let's just, let's try to find the holiest person we can find in this, this room. You're going to be the one that advocates for us. And the only chance that we have to be in the presence of God is you go talking to God for us and making this right. So once a year, the Yom, Yom Kippur was the day where this high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and advocate for the whole group. Here's what it looked like. Before Yom Kippur, the high priest would start to remove himself from the people. I don't want anybody to get me dirty. Okay. Now he would start to go through a bathing ceremony, cleansing himself from anything that might have made him physically, uh, physically, emotionally, relationally, spiritually gross, filthy. I'm, I'm starting to cleanse myself from it. There were certain people in the group that their whole job was to make white robes, perfectly white robes so that the high priest could wear. So they would, they would change into these clothes, a white robe, gold robes, looking spotless. And on Yom Kippur, after they've gone through the cleansing ceremony, a washing ceremony, they've put on the proper attire, they would go not directly into the Holy of Holies. You can't be that casual going into the presence of God. They would come on the outskirts of the temple. Temple was broken up into multiple parts. They'd go on the outskirts and they would make a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice. And that was for them personally. Have I sinned against God? I'm offering a sacrifice that I would take on the innocence of that animal and the animal would take on my guilt. If the Lord accepts my sacrifice, then I would leave the temple. I would take off all those clothes. I would wash again. I'd put on a new robe and I would go a little deeper into the temple. And now I'm going to lay a sacrifice for my family. Has there anyone in my household that has offended God? Let's take on the innocence of the animal. They take on my guilt. If God accepts that sacrifice, I come back out of the temple, I get a new robe, I go through the ceremonial washing again, and now is the chance for the high priest to go into the Holy of Holies. You guys, this was a big deal. Big deal. All of Israel would have been watching. Your only chance to be in the presence of God is if this guy advocates well for you. If he's done all the ceremonial cleansings right, he wears the proper attire, he gets in the presence of the Lord on your behalf, and he does it well, then we can be in the presence of God for another year. It was such a big deal that they would tie a rope around his ankle. And as he went into the Holy of Holies, the most, the holy place of the temple, if he was too casual or sinful or whatever, and he died in there in the presence of God, they didn't just casually go his body because now you'd have a pile of bodies. up. They would pull him out by his ankle from that rope. That's how serious this was. And so on Yom Kippur, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and make sacrifices. God, would you forgive us of our sins? Would we take on the innocence of this animal? Would, and the guilt of us as a people would be transferred. This happened year after year after year. Now, with that image in mind, I want you to turn to, if you have, go to Zechariah chapter 3. It's, it's toward the very end of the Old Testament. So if it's not a, it's a small book and not one that we're in often. But before we read this, I want to just kind of paint the picture of this vision. Imagine a courtroom. In the courtroom, you have Joshua, who is a high priest. Everything we just described, okay? You have Joshua, high priest. 
There is Satan who is there ready to accuse Joshua and an angel of the Lord, which many believe could be Jesus. So this is the courtroom scenario. This is the vision that is happening here. Zechariah chapter three, verse one. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to what? Accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with what? Filthy garments. Look up at me for a second. If you are a Jewish person reading this text, you just audibly gasped. Filthy garments? Our, our only hope of being in the presence of God is in our high priest advocating for us well. And the only hope that he has to be in the presence of God is that he is spotless. And this high priest, Joshua, you're saying, is standing before the angel of the Lord in filthy garments? Verse 4, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you in pure vestments. And I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. The passage goes on to talk about how a branch or one is coming who will remove the sins of the world in one day. That even though there's this high priest covered in filth, that there will be a new rope put on this high priest. And one is coming, a better high priest is coming, who will take away the iniquity of the world in one day. As a reader, originally uh, of this passage, you're, you're, as a Jewish person, you are full of all kinds of emotions. One being... Our only hope to be in the presence of God for the last several hundred years is in our high priest. And we would pick the best per, we, we have the best person operating at their very best to be in the presence of God. And you're saying that the best among us is filthy. That, that's a massive problem. And yet there's a glimmer of hope as there always is in the, in the gospel and in the Old Testament that one is coming, that there's a hope coming. And so you read this and you think, okay, what do we do? How do we be in the presence of God if the best of us is sinful and filthy and broken? And yet, how long do we wait? Is this weeks? Is this days? Is this years? This passage, the story that we read here in our Bibles, um, this is a couple pages before the end of the Old Testament. At the end of the Old Testament, from that time until the New Testament, you have about a 400-year-ish gap. So imagine that feeling where you see, you hear this vision that our high priest is filthy, not able to represent us well, and now you're waiting for 400 years of silence. 400 years, God doesn't say a word. No visions, no prophecies, no words from the Lord, just 400 years of quiet. When is this one coming? When is the branch coming? When is the savior, this person coming that's supposed to represent us? You have this guy named John the Baptist. He's preparing the way of the Lord and he's baptizing people and he's preaching of repentance. 
John the Baptist sees Jesus off in the distance. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Imagine hearing that as a Jewish person, knowing all these stories, the high priesthood, the prophecies, the vision. And this man is saying that that man is the Lamb of God. We know about lambs. We've been sacrificing lambs for decades. But that's a man. The Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. I mean, we, we know that the Lamb, we would sacrifice lambs and that would take care of my household and maybe us as a group. But there's a man, you're saying, John, there's a man who is the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. And Jesus would go on. This was the start of his ministry. He would go on to start to set himself up as a high priest. You think about the time, the passage where Jesus is teaching to a big group of crowds and they're, they're kind of pushing in on this house where he's teaching. And these friends have, one of their friends is paralyzed and they really want him to be healed, but they can't get to Jesus. So they cut a hole in the roof. You remember the story? They cut a hole in the roof and they lower their friend who's paralyzed through the roof. And Jesus looks at him and he doesn't say, your legs are healed. He looks at him and he says, your sins are forgiven. Jesus is setting himself up as a high priest. On Yom Kippur, before the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, he would start to remove himself from the group. Jesus, before he would be crucified, started to slowly remove himself from the large crowds. You would think Jesus would want to do these big rallies. He's got a couple days left. Let's get as many people as we can to hear this gospel message. But Jesus, much like a high priest, started to remove himself from the large crowds. On Yom Kippur, the high priest would bathe himself, ceremonial cleansing and bathing. Before going into the Holy of Holies, Jesus was bathed in the spit of his mockers. And Jesus gets up on a cross, beaten brutally, blood shed. The Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Finally, the branch has come. The Savior has come. The one we have waited for for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years has come. We're so exhausted of trying to be in the presence of God by keeping up with the law and doing the sacrifices over and over. Finally, there's one who takes it all away. If you are a Jewish reader, this is the best news ever. Your soul was exhausted. You, as a people, were exhausted. And finally, a Savior has come. It was good news for them. It's good news for us. On this very day, you have an accuser who day and night is saying, look at these people, God. Look at them. This is the best you've got. These are your followers, wicked, deceitful. They hurt each other. You said the world will know them by the way they love each other. They don't love each other. Look at them. They gossip. They slander. They chase money. They're addicted. They're wicked. The best of them. Filthy. And you know what's crazy and terrible about that? 
It's true. It's true. And you and I, all day, we live our lives, we set up a life to try to convince ourselves, now we're pretty good. Got it. I'm doing well. Show up to church and I try to dress well and present myself well and I've got a wife with me and the kids. And I, make sure you behave. You don't, don't embarrass me. Do everything I can to present to the world. I've got it together. I'm doing okay. I've got, I've got it together. My life is put together. I'm pretty clean. But the reality is, and, and this is if we're all honest, we lay our heads on our pillow at night and when it's quiet, we know we are not nearly as clean as we would want the world to believe. We look down and our robes are filthy. And Satan, the accuser, over and over, you are filthy. You are shameful. You're wicked. You're deceitful. You're a liar. You're a cheater. You're never going to be good enough. And he's right. He's right. We are wicked. We are sinful. We are deprived. Even if I could just project our thoughts from the last 24 hours up on a screen, we'd all run away. Just our thoughts. They're so wicked and twisted and weird. And we know it. And you and I, we start to sit there and we get buried. We hear the accuser accusing and we know it's true. And we start to get buried by our guilt and our shame and our own wickedness. And we start to curl up in a ball. I am wicked. I am sinful. And you know it's true despite how much you try to convince the world that it's not true. You know it's true. And just as you start to get overcome with your own wickedness and shame, you hear your high priest say, no, stop. I have snatched that one out of the fire. I've called that one my child. I've taken his filthy robe, and I've put on a clean robe. That one is my son and daughter. I have transferred my innocence onto their guilt. Stop, Satan. And you lift your head high, not because you've done anything well, but because God saved you. That is the gospel. And the tension of the gospel is that we get to walk with our heads held high, not because we've done anything great with our lives. We are wicked. We walk with our heads held high because we've been given a robe that we didn't deserve. How does that not turn into a life of worship? How do you hear that, receive that as a believer in Jesus? How do you hear the message of the gospel and not have everything in your life change? How do you start chasing money? as something more to satisfy your soul than that message. How do I not love my wife more? How do I not be more patient with my kids? When this is the gospel message that's been given to me so freely, what have I done? There's no swagger in the kingdom. What have I done? There's confidence because the God of the universe gave me a new robe. (laughs) But there's no swagger because I didn't earn it. I imagine there's two groups of people uh, in this room. We all probably fall into one of them. There are some of you in this room that you, you didn't even know that that's what God was like. You have still built a framework and a theology, subconsciously or consciously convincing yourself that you still need to be good enough in order to be in the presence of God. I just need to get my act together. And you may have even convinced yourself that you're actually a pretty good person. And your hope is that you'll stand before God and he gets, you know, he knows I tried. He knows I tried. I mean, he, if he, I get he's just and he can't be in the presence of sin, but he's also understanding, right? 
He's got to be understanding. He knows that I tried my best. Friends, if that is your hope, I, I love you so much. You are doomed for failure. Do you think that your goodness is going to stand up to the holy and perfect God? That somehow you're going to impress the God of the universe with your morality? You are doomed if that is your game plan. That you just try to be a good enough person for God to like you. You will never be good enough. Your righteousness, the scriptures say, is that of filthy rags. The best of us in this room. Your righteousness is a filthy rags. And you stand before a holy and just God and your good works will not impress the perfect one. You need a better advocate than yourself. You need a better God than yourself. You need somebody to advocate on your half that's better than you. Today, the application for you is that you would be saved. That God would save you from yourself. That he would rescue you from self-righteousness. You will never be good enough. There are some of you in this room that you've heard this message a thousand times. You could have taught it. You know it. This is the gospel message. You've hopefully heard it tons and tons of times. And yet you're still choosing to put on your dirty robe. God has called you son and daughter. And you, he said, I've snatched you from the fire. I've taken off your filthy robe and I've put on a new robe. Not based on anything you've done, but what I've done for you. I've poured out my grace on you and I poured out my wrath on myself. You get the grace. I took the wrath. And you heard that and you know it. And yet you're still walking around with a filthy robe. Buried in guilt and shame. And it's changing everything about the way you live your life day to day. You chase money. You chase status. You chase all these things that would be, you are convinced will satisfy your soul because you just set that robe aside and you said, maybe there's something else, much like Eve did. Maybe there's something else that would satisfy my soul. And you're in this cycle of knowing that you are loved and delighted in by the God of the universe and yet still at the same time feeling the guilt and shame of not being able to pull your life together. And so you are actually buried and you're in a weird cycle of continuing in sin over and over and over again. I'm going to ask Desiree to come up, if you, the worship team, if you would. My, uh, I have four kids. And uh, I, I, like Caleb said, I run this ministry for dads. And we were doing a dad-tired retreat last fall where guys from all over the country come and are with each other. It's, a, it's a powerful. Caleb was there with us last year. And I was getting ready to leave for that, quite literally, like trying to get to the airport to get on the plane with Caleb so that we can get, get there. And my daughter had been sick, my four-year-old. She had been sick, and she was losing her hearing, like kind of slowly throughout the week. But the last couple days, right before the retreat, it was getting worse and worse. And the day that we woke up to go to the retreat, we were going to go to the airport that morning, uh, she came downstairs, and she couldn't hear anything. She was completely deaf. And I remember talking to her, and as I was talking to her, she was putting her ear to my mouth. And then she was just saying, Daddy, I can't hear you. I can't hear you. Just fear in her eyes. And I'm just in pure panic mode as a dad. 
I'm just thinking about my baby girl and what is la- what's happening. You know, your brain as a parent goes all the worst scenarios. I'm like, what is happening? I'm terrified. I'm scared. And at the same time, I know I have to go get on a plane and I got to leave in 20 minutes to get to the airport to go to this retreat. I'm calling doctors. I'm calling the primary doctor, urgent care. I called Savannah Children's Hospital. I'm calling everyone I can, just anything to help my baby girl. What is happening? As I'm on the phone with Savannah Emergency, asking what I need to do, my two older kids are upstairs and they're starting to squabble with each other, starting to fight about something so dumb. So I hear that in the background as I'm feeling all these emotions. I can hear them escalate, escalate, escalate. And to the point where my son is just screaming at his little sister. And now my, my other daughter is crying because of what her brother just said to him. So I take all those emotions of like, I'm scared. I'm, I'm nervous. I don't know. I feel completely out of control. I feel all those emotions and I mix them up until I have anger. And I stomp upstairs and I pour out my anger on my son. Completely lose my temper. Screaming at him. Really what I was feeling was scared. But I turned all the things and I just poured out all my anger on my son. Screaming at him. And I stomp my way downstairs and I sit at the table. I've got like five minutes to leave before I need to go to the airport and preach the gospel to a bunch of guys. My daughter can't hear. I don't know what's going on. And I've just lost my cool on my son. I sit at the table. My wife, who's so gracious, heard everything and just sits quietly. (laughs) And immediately I feel guilt and shame. And I know I need to make that right before I leave. So I go upstairs into his room. And he's sitting on the floor and he's just got his arms crossed and he's he's scowling. And I sit next to him and he's just, I can feel all his emotions. And I don't know what to do as a parent at this point, but I, I just grabbed him and I pulled him in towards me. And he just started to sob. He just started to cry. And I said, what are you feeling, buddy? And he said, I shouldn't have done that to my sister. And I said, no, you shouldn't have one. And, I'm, and I shouldn't have handled that the way I handled that on you. I'm just feeling a lot of emotions right now. And I poured out anger on you. And I'm really, really sorry. And he's crying. And I don't really know what to say. I've got minutes before I have to leave for the airport. And for whatever reason, the phrase just kind of came out of my mouth. I said, just be my son. Just be my son. And when I said that, I could feel his body sink into my body. And he started to sob. It was like something about those words comforted him. Like he knew what it meant to just be my son. And I wonder if in all of our tired, exhausting, just trying to be good enough to be in the presence of God, if he would so graciously say, son, daughter, I've given you a new rope. Just be my son. Just be my daughter. Would your life be an act of worship as a result of the gospel. I saved you. I delight in you. You're mine. Just go be my son. Go be my daughter. How do we hear the gospel message and not worship with all of our life? Should we sing? We should be the loudest singers. God saved us. But also 
Worship means on Monday morning, I love my wife better as a result of the gospel. I'm more patient with my kids. I serve my coworkers. I'm not trying to climb some social ladder. I'm trying to just be sent into my co, my, my workplace with my coworkers as a missionary to serve. I've been, I've been saved by the God of the universe. It changes everything. For some of you, if you were in group one, today's the day of repentance. You stop trying to be the God of your own life. That's your response today. That God would save you. And for others of you, you need to just be sons and daughters. That you would live a life of worship in response to what God has done. Would you pray with me? I'm going to open up the altars. If you feel like you need to respond to what God's doing, we're going to ask you to do that. Jesus, Lord, would you forgive us as a people for trying to be our own high priest, for trying to advocate for ourselves like somehow our our good works are would be good enough. God, the only reason that we love you is because you loved us first. You chased us down first with your great love. God, thank you for those in this room that have surrendered their life to you. God, thank you that you saved us, that you rescued us from our own works and self-righteousness. We were covered in filth and you saved us. God, would your gospel message be the life transformation that we need? It's in your name we pray. Amen.